0: welcome to central line the aha podcast this is the official podcast of the american animal hospital association dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team here's your host dr katie berlin Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin, and my guest today is Dr. Jessica Trimble, who has much cooler background than I do. I'm devastatingly terrible with plants, um, and there are some plants behind you that look really amazing. So anyway, we might get to more about that because I'm really jealous of people who can make plants stay alive. I can't.
1: It's been a journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Jess Trimble, welcome to Central Line. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Me too.
0: Let's hear a little bit more about you and what it is you do now, how you came to be here.
1: Yeah. So short version is uh, I'm a veterinarian, obviously graduate of University of Illinois, 2013. So I'm just 10 years out now. I actually grew up in central Illinois on a small little farm surrounded by livestock, had an aunt and uncle with a veterinary clinic, and I worked there every single summer from the time I was probably in you know like third grade and so you know for summer breaks I'd go and like learn how to neuter cats and I think it'd be the best thing ever you know and go back to junior high and all my friends thought it was a little strange but you know it's just always been a part of my life uh and then after graduation um My husband, who's also a veterinarian, we decided to hop on out to California and, you know, we wanted to do something that was just as out of our comfort zone as possible. And for two Illinois farm kids, California seemed like a good, good place to try that out. (laughs) Uh, So we practiced there for several years and eventually, you know, while we were working at different clinics and and places sort of found ourselves sucked up into the world of startups um, and completely just out of the blue, you know, the um, one of the founders of our first startup um, actually brought his dog in to see me one night, and we just sort of got to talking. And so it was a total fortuitous meeting that really redirected my career in the direction that it is now. Which is, you know, I'm working with several startups, um, both as an employee and as an advisor, and I love working with new technologies and figuring out how we can use those technologies to help the pet and the veterinarians and the business as a whole um, and those pet owners, right? And I think that is what I'm so passionate about is finding like those little tweaks in our systems or those little tools that can make everybody's lives a lot easier because there's a lot of them out there. So that's sort of the direction that my uh, my career has gone. It's also gone in that direction because as I've aged, I've unexpectedly developed some uh, mobility issues, we'll say, which we can certainly dive into. But it's taught me a lot about how important it is to have these tools for people who can't stand on a clinic floor anymore um, or for pet owners who, you know, can't physically get somewhere. And so it's it's really helped to redirect my passions a little bit, um, you know, because now I'm helping myself as well, trying to figure out my own future. Um, so right now I'm the chief veterinary officer at Apanion. We are a virtual sort of communication engagement telehealth platform. Uh, and it's been super fun because it's been allowing me to sort of explore how I will be a veterinarian in the future as well. That's uh, you said so much there that we're going to get into later. Um, But
0: I a big big theme, I think, for the veterinary professionals that we've interviewed and and actually some of the people from outside vet med that I've talked to on this podcast have has been that they've sort of um, been willing to think outside of what their traditional career is. Um, That's not to say that there isn't incredible need and value for people who just want to go in and practice veterinary medicine. And I just want to say that, but like, you know, the way that the way that we've been practicing it for a long time. Um, but we are more aware these days for sure of, um, people who might not be able to practice in a traditional model um, of vet med, you know, go into the clinic for 10 or 12 hours at a time, be on your feet most of the day, do long surgeries, and then come home, go to sleep, do it all again. That is a very hard life. And it can be Mm -hmm. hard, especially hard for people with um, physical or mental um, conditions where they just cannot withstand that kind of um, that kind of life. So. I want to get into that for sure, but before we start, I wanted to ask, um, you know, there's this idea of a third space where you've got work and you've got home, and then there's another third space, like where some people go to the gym or it's um, the barn for horse people, um, stuff like that, where you can just be a different version of yourself, like all the the parts of you that maybe don't get to come out at work or at home or um, where you could just sort of let all that go. Do you have a third space?
1: Oh my gosh, I've got like a third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Um, (laughs) Yes, 100%. Um, And actually, I I didn't have a space until I burned myself out really hard after my first startup. That seems to be a common story. (laughs) Right. I was there for four years. I treated it like my child. And, you know, it got to a point where I realized it wasn't healthy. That's when we moved to Colorado. I left that job and I was lucky enough to, well, lucky enough, the pandemic hit. So mm. I ended up with about six months where I had a new house and a new state and a yard that needed a total overhaul. And so I was not really a green thumb at that point. My mother was, and I tried to be, and I just kept killing things. And I'm like, you know what? This is my year. <laughs> I can do this. Um, and so ended up building vegetable beds and putting in pollinator gardens and like that hands in the dirt or like weeding or whatever is such a meditative, quiet headspace for me that um, it really taught me that it was necessary for my sanity. Um, And so then it got to the point where my yard was done and I started collecting houseplants. And so like what you see behind me is a small portion of the (laughs) plants that I do have. But I think it's also a little bit because I miss having my hands on patients, right? Mm -hmm taking something that needs a little help and and making it healthier, or making something's life better. Um, you know, I've been in the tech world for so long that I do miss that. And so then when I'm, you know, like at Home Depot, and I find a dying plant, I'm like, I have to save it. And so that's what ends up happening. That's so interesting.
0: I, I, we have two, I have two co-workers in the learning department here at AHA who are also like very into plants and, um, you know, the plant's have like little personalities, you know, and um, have to be coaxed to do, you know, one of them does bonsai, like works with bonsai. And um, it's, it's like such an art. And I wonder now thinking about that, if that's that caretaker in us that, um, that isn't in the practice right now. And I get that now. Um, I've been having a plant- urged myself so I might have to ask you about that later because
1: oh I'll hook you up with some clippings I got you (laughs) yeah maybe one I I
0: I had a succulent a couple years ago and it died I mean it died such a hard death so um, those are easy to kill we'll get uh, you okay I keep Um, hearing that that they're low maintenance but maybe they're they're... really yeah tricky yeah okay Yeah. yeah Well, so let's let's get into a little bit of your story. And, um, you know, you had mentioned some mobility issues. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Um, you know, how that started and then how that sort of developed into helped you develop into the areas you're passionate about now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I have going on, I guess, just from the, the big picture view, is hypermobile Ehlers Danlos syndrome, which I remember seeing like one slide in veterinary school with like a cat with stretchy skin, and they're like, you might see this someday, and then you never see that slide again, right? Um, and I remember reading about that, and being like, huh, that actually sounds kind of familiar. Uh, and so most of the time, this disease doesn't, um, you know, it, it has some symptoms, but it doesn't really get worse in women until their mid to late 30s. And so, like, I was doing pretty fine most of my life. And funny enough, I actually wanted to be a dairy vet originally. My husband grew up in a dairy farm. I spent most of my fourth year of veterinary school doing uh, business consulting for dairy farms, living on the dairy farms. I absolutely love it. And I think that. Um, that business consulting side is what really helped spur even more of my interest in, in trying to get into the business side of veterinary medicine. But I realized very quickly that arming cows, like I was just destroying my shoulder. And, you know, I was just in my fourth year of veterinary school. So, like, well, crap, you know, this this can't be my future. You know, I'm like three cows away from rotator cuff surgery already. Like obviously being a dairy vet is maybe not the route I should take. And sort of as time went on, more and more things were popping up um, until I eventually blew out my knee um, a few years back. And the ortho- orthopod's like, you know you have this uh, EDS, right? It's like, excuse me, what? It's like, oh, well, yeah, look at you. You're like bending all over the place. And I didn't even really realize it at the time. And then over the years, it's gotten worse. And now to the point where like I have ribs out of place right now as we're sitting here. Like it's just a normal part of my life to have joints subluxate or dislocate and I can just pop them right back in and it's fine. And so um, the idea of me standing on a clinic floor, I would pass out, right? Like if I tried to pull suture for a surgery, I would dislocate my fingers. And so I realized that clinically I just can't do the things that I, I want to do on the clinic floor anymore. You know, I can't lift animals. I would, you know, I'd be getting workman's comp in like two days because I would break myself very promptly. Um, but with telehealth, right, I can sit at my computer and do all these things. And so sort of as time has gone on and I actually got involved with telehealth before I was having mobility issues. And um, the very first technician that I hired to help me provide telehealth for one of my first companies was brilliant. She was fantastic, but she could no longer be in clinic because b- she blew out both of her knees. And so that was sort of my first foray into like, oh, we can really help people by offering these sorts of jobs. And so from then on, we actually focused on only hiring veterinarians and technicians who couldn't be in the industry for you know, X, Y, and Z reason, You know, physical disabilities or Family caretaking issues and things like that, because we really wanted to be able to help that sort of job applicant pool. Um, so, yeah, that, that's where we're at. You know, I can't can't really stand and do clinical things anymore, but um, learning a lot through it in how I can help my colleagues with very similar issues. Um, and then, too, on the flip side, right? I've doing house calls and telehealth. I've had so many opportunities now to see just how much these new technologies can help those people that can't access care for physical and mental reasons. Um, So yeah. It's it's been a journey.
0: <laughs> Thank you for sharing all that. You know that had to be kind of crazy to be sitting in a doctor's office and they're like, you know, this is this is what you've got, right? Like you knew about this. It's like people who go in and find out they're like, oh, well, it didn't hurt the baby, and you're like, what baby? <laughs> um, so uh, that that had to be pretty crazy and um, and kind of you know something that you had to work through mentally, but also probably explained some things. So
1: totally explain some things but right there's a moment where you're like oh cool I've got this like disease it makes me bendy like no big deal and then you start to actually read into it and you're like well shoot you know like I might be in a wheelchair by the time I'm 60 I could dislocate my hips stepping wrong off of the curb right and so it's um it's definitely sort of a like bucket of cold water in your face of like wow like the rest of my life is different now um yeah. then yep yeah. um well
0: I- you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about all of the things that, you know, I just had, I had a very common minor back surgery in 2020. I had a year, about a year of back pain and I had a discectomy because, um, the disc just, just picked 2020, like the worst year ever to just bulge, um, into my spinal cord. Um, and the, you know, that whole year I just realized how much I take for granted and always have that we do in the clinic. Like when I would see a two-year-old pit bull, on the schedule, I would freak out because I was like, "Okay, who's going in this room first? Because I can't go in this room first. If it jumps on me, you're going to watch me pass out. And um, just things like that where like a young, healthy dog appointment turned into a source of serious stress because I was just afraid of what was going to happen to me. And and it really gave me a perspective that this is a very, I'm going to generalize, but it is a pretty ableist profession. We don't think about that very much.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's true, right? The people that are in clinics, the people who are able, are there because they are able. As soon as you're not, you have to you have to leave, right? They say every large animal vet will eventually become a small animal vet, and you know some people can stay in their whole lives, but it's a reason we lose technicians so much too, right? It is a very physically demanding job most of the time.
0: Just getting on and off the floor the way we do a thousand times a day, um, you know, when you've blown both knees out, is not probably going to be something you can do. Um, And um, people in larger bodies or bodies that just don't want to do these things, we just sort of write them off. And we're like, well, that's end of your clinical career, go do something else. But what are they going to do? And um, that is something that I don't think I've heard talked about much with telehealth. We talk Mm -hmm. a lot about accessibility from the client side now, which is great and very needed. But I haven't heard very many people talking about it from the... The practitioner side. Um, And so, you know, I was wondering like, with the telehealth um, boom that we saw during the pandemic, and now having a few years under our belt after that, um, have you seen telehealth solve problems um, that we, you know, maybe didn't even know we had before the pandemic? like unwittingly solve problems? And have you seen it create any problems that maybe we didn't have before we were using it a
1: lot? Sure. Um, so it that has been a journey, like telehealth since the pandemic. So <laughs> I'll rewind it a little bit, right? Pre-pandemic, telehealth started as like a really bad word, probably in like mm-hmm. 2015, 2016. It started getting talked about. It was very frowned upon. By the time the pandemic came around, it was kind of like, a little more neutral, you know, people were starting yeah. to be a little more open. And then the pandemic hit, and everyone's like, well, you know, we have to have this to survive. And so a ton of clinics jumped on the bandwagon for providing telehealth. The good and the bad there is that there were and still are several telehealth platform companies that at the pandemic time were baby companies, you know, they were just getting started. They were sort of still, I don't want to say beta testing, they had products, but they were still figuring out their life. And now all of a sudden, every single one of them has 500 customers that want to sign up today. And so no one was really able to handle that well. And I think it unfortunately, like put a a bad spin and back on telehealth again. Because all of these veterinarians are like, I tried telehealth in COVID, but it didn't work because we couldn't get a platform and we couldn't, you know, manage the change. And so I really think that the pandemic proved that we need telehealth, but it Mm -hmm. also proved to veterinarians that they can't implement it in a time of chaos and change like that. And so it was just too much happening at once and almost everybody then dropped it. So yeah. it was like this huge wave and everyone jumped back off because they were just trying to survive with what they had going on. And, you know, most of them, if they needed to do something virtual, they would just do it through Zoom or face, you know, FaceTime, whatever, which is fine, easy. Now we're seeing this upswing back up where there's been a little time to breathe um, since that. And I think a lot of these veterinary clinics, especially the ones that are short staffed, are saying like, okay, we need to find a solution to help us improve our efficiency and go from there. And so now what we're seeing is clinics that are coming on that actually want to do telehealth and they actually have a team that are like, we're ready to do this versus the, oh my gosh, I need to do this because I'm going to die if I don't, right? The, the mindset difference is what's really yes. key right now. Um, yeah. So have I seen telehealth cause problems? Yeah that the whole (laughs) pandemic, like that was a problem. (laughs) Um, is Is it creating solutions now? Yes. And I think that's what's really cool, what I'm seeing. So before it was like, we need telehealth to do curbside. Everyone was trying to do the same sort of thing, but every clinic is so different. And so what we're seeing now is these clinics going, oh, I could use telehealth to you know, help do health certificate consultations or do all my neuter rechecks. You know, I'm seeing these doctors coming to me with an idea of how they can already see that it's going to help them. And so they're coming in with a much more like positive future thinking sort of mindset where they want to do this because it's going to be good, not because they feel like they have to, because there's a pandemic hanging over them. So, you know, we're seeing some really interesting use cases like veterinarians that are trying to retire but they still want to sort of support their old clinic um where they're you know doing a couple mornings a week of telehealth which is really cool to see um lots of i i could talk for days about all the different ways that our clinics are using telehealth because each one of them is really unique in how they're using it to support like their own needs which i find absolutely fascinating you know i think a lot of us thought telehealth was just going to be like the scalable like we everybody can use it but the way that clinics are using it are these like very small um and then growing but we're seeing a lot of success with those guys now so good it, it's taken a minute to get there but i think we're we're back on the upswing
0: yeah i i can relate um big time to the the pandemic like panic uh, the clinic i was at um you know was definitely like, oh gosh, we need to figure out how to do this. And I was kind of the one um, who was spearheading that. And we used Zoom and nobody knew how to use Zoom at that point, you know, so like you're talking to the client's head and like, I've never had so many clients show me their rashes before. Oh my God. Anyway. So it was, you know, (laughs) there was one guy who was like, but you know, my dog has a rash and I just, I don't know. And I was like, well, it looks like pyoderma, but you know, it looks a little bit weird. Like it, I just can't really, I think we're going to need to see you. And then he's like, oh, do you think it could be related to the fact that I have MRSA? And he stood up and I, it was like, nah, can't unsee it. But I was actually at that moment, very glad it was a telehealth appointment because otherwise this man would have been standing in my room with MRSA. Yeah. So, you know, um, bonus, but I, <laughs> I feel like, and then, you know, it was such a pain because we had Zoom and not a platform to integrate into the PIMS. And so everything was manual and it just took forever. And it was hard to promote the service. And I'm sure our experience was very typical. Um, yep. Yeah. But the idea of telehealth, for so many reasons, um, is exciting and appealing. Um, and I feel like, for me, that the mental change happened when I realized we weren't replacing with it. We were augmenting. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, people's reservations about like misdiagnosing and um, people not, you know, clients not valuing the exam anymore because they're like, well, she just did it over Zoom or whatever. Um, have you seen that manifesting? Or do you feel like that those are pretty rare occurrences if telehealth is used well?
1: Yeah, they're super rare occurrences. Um, I think that that's one of the, the main sort of myths that we have to fight Around telehealth is that it is not a replacement at all for in-person care, right? You know, we need to use mm-hmm. it to to be that point of contact everywhere around that physical appointment. Um, but never does it does it actually replace that. So it's it's been really interesting to see how people's mindset shifts have changed. And most of them change, like you said, after you've done one or two. And you're like, oh, you know, there's a light bulb that goes off. I'm like, this is yeah. actually kind of nice. Like I can do all yeah. of my education and get the client prepped while I'm on my couch, you know, instead of battling through it in the clinic. And so, um, yeah, that is, I think, one of the biggest things that we have to really focus on is the augmentation of care, and it's not always the augmentation of the physical exam, right? But the augmentation of care in getting a patient to a physical exam. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's somebody who has that, you know, access to care issue, and they just need that person to talk to so they can better understand, you know, how soon do I need to go in or how serious this is so that they can arrange their transportation to the clinic or so that, you know, whatever it is. I remember um, one client I used to do house call for uh, in San Francisco, saw her for a little while. She was completely blind and she had three cats and all three cats were elderly. All of them needed all of the old cat, you know, blood works and dentals and things that you would expect. Mm -hmm. And of course she can't catch the cats. She can't see where the cats are. She can feed them and assume they're going to come up, but like, you know, doing a true telehealth visit with her is impossible because we can't actually see the cats because she can't see the cats. Right. Right. (laughs) But, you know, we were able to like set up computers in front of feeding bowls and tell her to feed and like have the cats come up so we could at least see, you know, that they were alive and well or not, or be like, oh, she looks like she's lost some weight. You know, we better arrange for you to get her in. And so, you know, otherwise she would never know Mm-hmm. You know what her cat is looking like, and so, yeah. um, you know, we use telehealth to to help increase her access to care. Not that she couldn't get her pet into the clinic; it's just she didn't know when she should be getting it into the clinic, right? And so, you know, we we would work with so many folks like that that we're just so incredibly grateful to have any sort of service because it is hard to get into a clinic, just yeah. in general, right? Especially it is in a city, right? Yes.
0: This AHA podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit understands that all veterinary teams are busier than ever. To help patients get the care they need, the Care Credit Health and Pet Care Credit card allows clients to access a budget-friendly financing experience anytime from anywhere on their own smart device. They can learn, see if they pre-qualify, apply, and even pay if approved, all on that smart device. With just a tap, they have a friendly, contactless way to pay over time for the services and treatments their pet needs, whether it be a general, referring, or specialty hospital, as long as they accept the CareCredit credit card you know, even just as someone who needs to medicate my dog before going to the clinic, Mm -hmm. I don't want to go unnecessarily, you know, and I'm a veterinarian. So I have an advantage of knowing when he needs to go in. But um, if I didn't know that, and I was like, should I worry about this spot? Or, you know, his luxating patella or whatever? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it time and having to drug him and be late to work and get in the car and sit in traffic and go Mm -hmm. in? I am a completely able-bodied person with a flexible job. And that is still... A pain in the butt to me. Um, so. I definitely can see that just being peace of mind for some people, that it's mm-hmm. time. I also think about, um, we had Sharice Roth on a couple of times, and she's she's so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talked about you know people who were from communities where reg- getting regular vet care maybe wasn't quite the norm, yeah. um, and they didn't know where to go or who to talk to, or that it was going to help, that there was anything that could be done for these problems. And yeah. so it wasn't even necessarily that they didn't want to pay for care, it's yeah. they didn't even know either that they had to, or how they were gonna be treated when they got there. Absolutely. And, um, sort of giving veterinary professionals a good name through these communications seems like another really valuable service.
1: Absolutely, right? And right, sometimes it's just being available for a conversation. Yeah. And just that first step of having somebody who knows a little something and can take that time to explain things. and you know, for better or worse, we've seen over the last few decades decreased trust in the recommendations that veterinarians make because people, you know, have realized that veterinarians make money off of those recommendations. But if we can have those conversations before the person has set foot in the clinic to say, look, you know, here's what we'd recommend. Here's why this might be what it costs. And they can take that little moment to sort of internalize it and think about it and maybe arrange some finances so that they have the money that they need at that moment. Like the number of times I was in a clinic and I'm like, you know what, your your dog needs a foreign body surgery, right? And they're like, well, we can do it, but I need two days to get the money together. If that person had been able to contact me through telehealth two days earlier when the dog started vomiting and I could tell him, you know, this might've been an issue, I could have possibly done surgery on the day the dog needed it, not two days later when that dog was three quarters of the way to dead and dehydrated, right? And so just having that initial touch point for education and to just be that sort of like guiding North Star is so incredibly valuable.
0: This is sort of hopping topics, but I was just thinking about it. Like when we were uh, talking about all the things that we sort of take for granted doing, and um, taking accessibility for granted, um, you know, we take for granted that clients can just pick up their pet, put it in a carrier or whatever, or like put it in the car and then drive to the clinic. And there are so many clients that can't even pick up their pet off the floor to do that. Yeah. Um, and that goes for veterinary professionals too. Um, do you feel like? And I'm thinking about vet conferences now. Um, you know, you go to some place like VMX or Western, and there's so much walking. And it's you're walking and walking, walking. And then there was one conference I went to where the room was overflowing. And so we went to the overflow room, and the overflow room was full. So we sat on the floor, and the fire marshal was there, and we had to stand up. And like a lot of people can't stand up for an hour Mm -hmm. and watch a lecture, never mind that it's not really that fun. Like it's actually impossible. Um, So do you feel like that's something that we need to be paying more attention to now? Or do you feel like that's been changing as well, um, where you go to vet events and it's sort of taken for granted that we're an able-bodied group who could just do what we want?
1: It's a really great question. I don't think it's one that's been considered really much at all, right? Because once yeah. you're not an able-bodied veterinarian, most of the time people stop being a veterinarian and they right. they're like, to, Bye. Yeah, they stop yeah. coming to these, these conferences and things. So I, for one, would not be able to stand for an hour. You know, I I would faint in ten minutes. There's no question I I wouldn't be able to do that. Um, and so I, I think as a you know a country we are more and more realizing that at some point everybody stops being able bodied, right? At mm-hmm. some point everybody gets an injury or an illness or something that makes them realize oh you know what, this world is not actually built for people with mobility issues. Um, But unfortunately, it usually doesn't, you know, hit people until later in life or they hit people and, you know, they can't do anything about it. And so I think those realizations are happening. I don't know that they're happening in the vet profession fast enough um, because, right, I think there is just a total lack of transparency into all of the amazing veterinarians and technicians that are out there that can't do those things. Um, yeah. I can't walk an exhibit hall all in one day. Like my feet, yeah. and knees are crying at the end of those days. Yeah, um, and takes, those tote yeah. bags they give you—they're
0: like full yeah. of stuff that oh, weigh I like forty them. pounds.
1: I can't carry yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> Too, yeah, I can't carry them. Uh, but yeah, it—it it takes me like probably almost a week to recover from being at a conference for a few days. It's—it's it's crazy. <laughs>
0: Yes. I mean, and they're mentally so stimulating, too. So it's like a double whammy. Um, But physically, I'm always very tired after Mm -hmm. them. Um, But I cannot imagine that experience. Um, And but it's also such a valuable experience where, um, especially for somebody who's not in a clinic, um, able to do the things that maybe they used to do or that they see their colleagues doing, it's a place where you can connect, where normally you might be sitting at home mm-hmm. in your home office. You know, you're doing telehealth. That's wonderful that we have that now, but those connections are so important. And so um, I think it's it's a really good opportunity to stop and think about um, ways that we can make veterinary education events, more um, user-friendly for people who are not the traditional, like, I could be on the farm all day and it's fine, you know, and then I'm going to go home and like do all my farm chores at my farm that I had. I I couldn't do that. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. So vets are historically, vets and techs are historically like very high energy people. And um, it is hard sometimes to not doubt yourself when you have limitations that Yep, you don't see other people having.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think it a lot of it goes back to who we are as people, right? We are type A perfectionist. You know, we, some of us in, you know, especially in certain parts of the profession seem to like love the suffer fest of, yes, we know, do. Oh, I stayed up till 3 a.m. three nights and a row, like, good for you. But that's not really healthy, right? <laughs> right. Lunch, um, what's lunch? <laughs> right. And so we, as a profession, like, just are not nice to ourselves, but don't yeah. don't like to acknowledge that or don't like to complain about it. You know, like we get bit by a dog and then we go into the next appointment, right? And we just like yeah. throw some vet wrap on it and say, "See you later." <laughs> Most people would go to the hospital and take the day off after that, right? And so, right. like we just have been trained to suffer and deal with it. <laughs> yes, that is fair.
0: That's very fair, um, mentally and physically, yeah. right? Um, so back to telehealth for a second, cause I was wondering, you know, there are times when I've been so burned out that I did not want to talk to another client. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of sitting on telehealth appointments and talking to clients like all day where I didn't actually get to touch a pet was not appealing to me, mm-hmm. but I wonder how much of that was that I was too far gone at that point, you know, and, I was wondering in the veterinary professionals that you've met and for you yourself um, where a lot of their career has been remote or, you know, non-traditional in that way, but also still client facing. Do you think that we are seeing or that we're going to see similar levels of burnout in those client, in those um, professionals as we do in the clinic? Or do you think that that stress at the clinic being removed is, is going to help shield us somewhat?
1: It's a good question. And I think that's such a personal veterinarian by veterinarian question because Yeah. Like I personally I, I think I've burned out on both sides of that. I've burned out doing some like too much clinical work in too many hours. But I've also burned myself out doing telehealth when I was trying to mm-hmm. build up this previous telehealth startup and I was answering questions till 10 PM and then six AM before I was even out of bed. I was looking back on my phone trying to do this. And granted, we were trying to build a business at the time. But I had set no boundaries for myself and, you know, really wanted to grow this. So I think, yes, you can burn yourself out doing it either way. (laughs) Yeah. Unless you can set your boundaries correctly. Right. Because when Mm -hmm. I was doing it and it was a nine to five and I would take my breaks and I'd get up out of my desk and I'd walk around and I'd go take a break and walk my dog. I got no problem. Right. When you take care of yourself, I was fine. It's when you're buried or don't have the tools to do your job properly. um, But I think we see more of that burnout.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Boundaries are important, clinical or remote job. You know, you still need boundaries. But and telehealth is probably a slippery slope, I'm guessing, for many where they're like, I could just see one more call or whatever. But um, also, you don't have the same. For me, the biggest stressors for the clinic were that you didn't know what was going to walk in the door. And um, that once it was in front of you, it was very hard to say no, or to, you know, d- make a decision once you were like decisioned out. And so and then the client conversations got more stressful, because I was stressed about those things. But like, seeing a wellness appointment wasn't a source of, of burnout, it was all the other things on top of the, the wellness appointments. And, so removing that, for some of us, I could imagine, would make a really big difference in how we're able to relate to clients, because we know that there isn't like a GDV that's going to walk in the door any second, and we're going to have to figure out what to do with that while we have three clients complaining in the waiting room because we're late, Um that was very very
1: stressful for me. <laughs> Some people are adrenaline junkies, and I am the opposite. <laughs> I, I am right there with you. Right there with you. Uh, like a diabetic ketoacidosis is my nightmare. Right? Like yeah. the idea of trying to explain that to a pet owner, and oh my gosh, yes. Like you're like calculating. God, things. love tests yeah. Yes. <laughs> I <can't. laughs> um, but I think what you're saying is a really important part because there's a twofold benefit there that. Say you don't want to you know, be in clinic and have those direct conversations. So someone comes to you maybe with a two-year-old Great Dane who has vomited once, right? Mm-hmm. And you're doing a telehealth conversation with them. You're going to say, hey, you know what? I need you to think about GDB. I, I need you to be educated because you're going to tell them that it's a risk. Like people who do good telehealth, even if it's something minor, will follow it up with I need you to watch out for X, Y, and Z. And if it gets worse, you know, keep going. That's the whole point of doing good telehealth. And so what you've done then is when that great Dane goes in for his GDV the next day, right? You've done a great job because you've educated somebody and you've gotten to do it in a low stress way the pet owner is ecstatic because you've saved their dog's life because they didn't know what to look for otherwise. And the veterinarian in the clinic is so relieved because that person came in with an open wallet expecting it might be a GDV and knowing that there's going to have to be diagnostics done and knowing that surgery is a possibility. And so like your one little conversation, just like save lives, save money, saved your colleagues time. Like it's just such a win, 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 win for everybody that I wish... I wish every patient started with a telehealth conversation. Like I, I love think that the start to every single medical interaction is just a conversation, right. About where yeah. the right place to go is or about, you know, what the, I, what you should be thinking about. It would make everybody's lives so much easier.
0: <laughs> well, and I've heard, I've actually have a couple of friends who have done that at their practice for new puppy and kitten appointments. They'll have a technician do like a huh? pre-visit telehealth um, appointment where they like, do all talk about all the things because mm-hmm. like that was also super frustrating for me. Was staying on time. There's a reason that I left the clinic when I did. Is just I was frustrated a lot, and it had nothing to do with the team I work with. They were fantastic, but like you know, the first twenty minutes of a puppy appointment could just be talking. Yeah, and then suddenly you're late. And yeah. I love the idea that they could have had this. The relationship start earlier, and that would be a great place for technicians to use what they know. And like coo over the puppy and it'd be all Mm. cute and you don't have to do anything bad to the puppy over telehealth and um, everybody's happy at the end. That seems like a win-win-win, like you said.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's quite a few clinics now that are starting to do like puppy kitten packages where you get, you know, three telehealth visits a month or things like that. Or they'll even break it up and say... You know, we're we're giving you one telehealth visit a week and week one, we're going to talk about vaccines. Week two, we're going to talk about nutrition. Week three, we're going to talk about behavior. And they will actually set up almost like coursework for these guys ah. uh, and people pay for it. They love it. The technicians run it. They love it because they get to do it at home. And it's yeah. Again, win, win, wins for everybody.
0: Yeah. And You could have a technician who maybe can't even work in the clinic, who's never going to actually get to see that puppy otherwise, who could be doing those things. Um, I I love that idea so much. I feel like this conversation um, gives us a good place to just mention that um, you can't always tell when someone is physically not able to do everything that other people can do just by looking at them. Because you you look like a very healthy person, you know, and our wellness culture that we live in says... To us, that if you take care of yourself right and you eat the right foods, you know, like superfoods, and you do your exercise, and that you're, if you're not healthy after all that, it's your fault, right? Um, And that if someone is disabled in any way, who is limited in their physical ability in any way, that it's because they neglected something or they did something wrong, or we can tell by looking at them because they are a person who does not look healthy. Have you encountered that um, in sort of this EDS journey? Um, And has that changed how you relate to other people?
1: It has. It really has. Uh, Because I am a perfect example of that. If you look at me, I look 100% fine. Um, And... I certainly was one of those people that, you know, growing up, I grew up on a farm where like hard work is your value, right? Mm-hmm. How many shovels, you know, shovelfuls you can go, or how many like bales of hay you can toss, that is your value. And so for me now too, sort of facing that, you know, like how my value has changed as a human not being able to contribute in a physical manner has really changed how I've looked at other people. Um, or, you know, when that person gets out of their car in the, the disabled spot and you're like, you don't look disabled enough to park there. Yeah, You know, it's it's a really good realization that like, oh, maybe that person's, you know, gets exhausted after walking 30 steps because some days I do you know, get it. So certainly it's changed how I've looked at people. Um, I think it's changed more so how I look at the workforce and how, what a poor job we are doing, not just supporting, but also (laughs) doesn't sound terrible, but using those people. There are so many brilliant brains out there. Um, and you know, we have this supposed shortage of veterinarians, but we really don't, we have this enormous pool of veterinarians and technicians that just can't be in a clinic. And we're doing really nothing to support those people, give them back an income stream and have them help us in our time of chaos, right? There's this total lack of connection that's driving me absolutely nuts. Um, and so this, yeah, I think has has really changed how I've looked at that pool of workers and how we could potentially help all of the, you know, in-clinic teams have easier lives. Yeah. It it seems like we look
0: at technology and developments in vet med um, from the point of view of like, I mean, and it makes sense, of course, is it going to, make the pet healthier is it going to make the client's life easier and those things are obviously super important Mm -hmm. but we're also finding that without people to take care of them um those technologies can't help so it makes sense like you know having an in-house blood machine blood analyzer like that's great that benefits everyone you know for sure also telehealth we think of so many reasons why we shouldn't use it and why it's going to cause a problem or why we're opposed to the idea or legislation has to catch up or all the things that are what we see as a, as a roadblock. But we had another guest on recently, uh, Melody Martinez, who is lovely, a lovely, lovely person. Um, and she said something where she were talking about mentorship and she said something like, you know, a good mentor when approached with an idea or a suggestion or request instead of just saying no right away we'll say something like you know well what would that look like if we did that you know um what would it look like if we ha- if we had to make that work and i feel like telehealth we've we're now out of the realm of it might go away and we can stop talking about it <laughs> like you know it, it's it's not it shouldn't be a bad word anymore and this if no other reason is, an, is a really great reason to say, well, what would it look like if we did do it? You know, if we could suddenly transform our workforce by giving an opportunity to be part of our, of our practice or our ecosystem to all of these people who have had to write it off for whatever reason, um, stay-at-home moms, you know, who had trouble entering the workforce again after their kids go to school, stuff like that. We just, that seems like it should be enough to give it a try, you know.
1: Yeah. Seems like it, right? And again, it's <laughs> one of those win-win-win-wins, right? It's it's good mm-hmm. for the pet, it's good for the pet owner, it's good for the business, it's good for us as veterinarians, and so right, I I am failing to see why we're not doing more of this with the exception of the fact that, you know, we've we do have a lot of legislation that holds back a lot and it's changing. We've had several states mm-hmm. that are rolling new legislation and um All of which is pet owner or industry driven, you know, not Mm -hmm. driven by really veterinarians themselves. So yeah, that has been concerning, but also, you know, it's really got to be something that we're paying attention to as veterinarians, because this is happening without us right now. Yeah. Which is tough. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) And we have to be the ones driving it to make sure that it's being done right. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's a big part of what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, if it's going to happen with us or without us, like I'm going to jump on the bus and go with it, you know, because I want it to be done right um, and to help the people and and not harm because telehealth can be harmful if used incorrectly. Mm-hmm. We absolutely do So don't, can any aspect of medicine, right? Just like any aspect. Absolutely. Uh, and so there's certainly, you know, some training that can be done to, to help with that. Um, but we need to be the ones doing it.
0: Well, I I think that's a good note to end on because um, I, I can't think of a group that's more equipped to be in the driver's seat than a group of people who is used to like you know, tearing up tongue depressors to make splints for hamsters and stuff like that. Like, we should be able to figure out how to do this.
1: (laughs) We can make (laughs) guys together. Yeah. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) And we don't have to anymore because now there's actually platforms with the capacity to handle what we need to handle and make it what we need. And just because another practice is doing it one way doesn't mean you have to do it that way. So even in states where there are very strict, there is very strict legislation um, you know, restricting the VCPR and um, and limiting what people can do over telehealth, you can still do a lot over
1: yes. a telehealth call, right? You can do an immense amount. And frankly, the to me, the majority of value of telehealth can be done without a veterinary license involved at all. It's that guidance and education yeah. and support and relationship building. It's not about the diagnosis really at all. Right. So, right. yeah, the, the yeah. fact that these laws are changing in these states shows that consumers want it, but it doesn't actually change that much. What we at veteran as veterinarians can already be doing that we're not doing. Yeah.
0: I love that. You said that that's a, that is a super important point. And we actually have you helped aha, um, or are, are helping at the time of this recording, uh, de- aha develop a telehealth certificate course. So that, um, should be out soon. Um, while we're recording this, it is not currently available, but it will be. So you and our chief medical officer, Dr. Jessica Vogelsang, um, have been working really hard on this. And I'm very excited for that to come out because um, a little bit of education for the staff can create a lot of buy-in and um, and hopefully help transform how people see telehealth in their practice.
1: Yep, absolutely. Um, I'm very excited for this certificate to, to come out. It's, um, it's nice that we've been able to update some stuff from a couple years ago and make sure that this will be great advice in there. So excited, excited to get that out.
0: Yes. So coming soon um, from AHA learning. So we'll, I'll be sure to drop a link um, to AHA learning in the show notes here so that you can check back and see um, when it's going to be released. I don't, I don't have a specific release date, but sometime this fall, um, if not sooner. So Um, that will be exciting. Dr. Jess Trumbull, thank you so much for spending time um, and for sharing so openly what you've gone through and um, sort of opening that window into, I think a lot of people listening will be like, huh, you know, uh, again, heard of the stretchy skin cat and not, didn't think about EDS much after that, but there are probably a lot of people walking around in your life right now who actually are dealing with it or something similar. And um, it's worth just giving it a little bit of thought. Um, and maybe not making an assumption when somebody looks a certain way that they aren't dealing with a certain thing. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Again, we'll drop some links in the show notes. Dr. Jess, where can people reach you if they want to find out more about you or about Anna Panion?
1: Uh, Easiest place is probably to jump on uh, my LinkedIn, look me up, Jess Trimble. Otherwise, um is a great place to find me more specifically ce.anapanion.com it's where i have all of my uh telehealth continuing education and resources and it's all free so i love uh getting out as much education as i can
0: awesome we'll put that link in the show notes too thank you so much again for stopping by um i'm going to talk to you more about plants later And um, maybe we'll be back with a plant-centric, plant vet episode one day. Let's do it. (laughs) There's probably demand for that. Plant podcast coming soon from AHA. (laughs) We'll catch you next time on Central Line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit AHA.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.